Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Visit agorapodcastnetwork.com to hear more wonderful shows from many talented colleagues. Hello everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Heba Abdel-Gawad. Heba Abdel-Gawad is the lead researcher for the project Egypt's Dispersed Heritage. This is a research and public outreach project that aims to put modern Egyptians and their stories at the forefront of conversations and approaches to ancient Egypt. For most of Egyptology's history, the scientific and historical work has focused on European and American institutions and scholars. In the 21st century, there is a growing movement to bring Egyptians back into the fold, so to speak, of their country's heritage. Haber works in this field, as well as curating museum exhibitions aimed at presenting the voices and faces of Egyptians in history, both modern and ancient. As you will see, Haber is a passionate and insightful commentator. I expect we will hear much more from her in the future. Please join me in welcoming Haber Abdel-Gawad to the History of Egypt podcast. Okay, uh, Heba, good morning and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Hi, it's lovely to be talking to you at this, well, it's very late at night for me, so I don't, and I know it's like, um, what time is it at your end? For me, it is just after 11am. Okay, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. So uh, for those of my listeners who aren't necessarily following at the moment, how are things in Cairo right now? Um, well, it's too hot. <laughs> Uh, but it's not as hot as it should be for like August. So I, I don't know what, okay. what maybe that's that's the bit of climate change that we're getting here. Like it would get cooler mm. for us than the rest of the planet. So I don't know, maybe that that's, I don't want to, to sound like awful, but that might be the good side of climate change yep, for us sure. here. <laughs> and <laughs> apart from that, we've got, um, I don't know if I can call it a lockdown, but it's a semi lockdown. Mm. Like uh, you're obliged to wear masks everywhere, obviously. And like, well, social distancing is something that is very difficult to happen in Egypt for anyone or mm. perhaps in the Middle East. That's like, it's not something that we people can easily grasp. So, yeah, but at least, um, well, it, it's um, you, you can you can tell that some of the behaviors are changing in the sense of like, you don't mm. kiss every single person you see anymore. Sure. And you can just say hi from a distance. So that's, mm. yeah. That's the COVID mm-hmm. impact on us. <laughs> so you're working primarily in Cairo, um, and you're able to work from home at the moment, which is which is fortunate. Yeah. So 
Uh, before we start asking about your your earlier projects, what are you working on at the moment? We're working on. Uh, I'm working on the Egypt Dispersed Heritage Project. It's uh, mm -hmm. like between me and Alice Stevenson. Alice Stevenson, she's mm -hmm. the principal investigator at UCL, and I'm right. like the lead uh, researcher for it in Cairo, um, mm -hmm. conducting all the activities and um, and engagements here. And the, mm -hmm. the project is, um, it's just, I, I don't, I, I never like to call it engagement, but it's where we're trying to foster and develop a dialogue with um, mm -hmm. the various community groups in Egypt surrounding sure. how and why um, artifacts from Egypt left uh, to the rest of the world by the British presence in Egypt between 1880 and 1981. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mm -hmm. the scale of okay. the scope of the Egyptian artifacts by mm. uh, British collectors, excavators from Egypt mm. to the world. So yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're doing a variety of That's... events on and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a very big project. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's very exciting. It's very interesting. Mm. It's it's very interesting because I've always dealt with those questions um, like uh, very academically, and mm -hmm. that's perhaps the first time that I can I can see how the non-academics tend to see um, such evidence. And particularly, mm. it's important for me to, to witness firsthand the emotional legacies of um, colonialism mm. and the impact. And because it's it's one thing, me being Egyptian and being an Egyptologist and, and feeling mm -hmm. all such legacies looking into the archive, but working with mm. other non-Egyptians and, and like, when, when they get introduced to the information for the first time and you see how uh, they react to it is, um, I don't want to call it refreshing because that's, uh, because it's usually sad emotions, but it's, mm. uh, it's truly eye-opening. And I, and, mm. and it's one of the reasons why I hope more Egyptians can get involved in the story of Egypt, in the making of uh, Egypt's history, because they've got a lot to contribute to, yeah. How did that project uh, begin? Um, what was the start of it? Uh, well, initially there was uh, Alice's uh, project, the Artifacts of Excavation, which is um, right. perhaps we can provide the listeners with links to the website because it's extremely useful. Um, all the distribution lists and um, you can actually trace mm -hmm. excavations and how objects from excavation traveled from Egypt to the world through uh, British uh, excavators, British mm. collectors, etc. So it's the artifacts of excavations which um, mm -hmm. the, which got all summed up in her magnificent book, Scattered Finds. And um, I've been uh, I've been in touch mm -hmm. or we've we've we I wouldn't say we we did work together initially or they've hosted uh, a conference that was um, organized by the Artifacts of Excavation mm. Project where I presented a paper on uh, Egyptian perceptions of uh, repatriation and Western museums based on some social media research that I've been conducting since 2015. And then Alice mm. and I started a conversation mm. where we were discussing how we can include Egyptians um, in the story uh, of the mm. Artifacts of Excavations mm. or the Scattered Find. Finds. So I we started working on translating the website, making the find the findings more um, available to Egyptian audiences by having the website translated into Egyptian Arabic, 
And then mm -hmm. there was an opportunity to apply mm -hmm. for um, follow-on funding, which is necessarily for impact, where you can take, mm -hmm. because it's a part of mm -hmm. uh, the funding scheme in the UK, like the HRC, if you're awarded a project, then you are offered an opportunity to apply again for a follow-on to take your results, mm -hmm. uh, to take your findings mm -hmm. to the public. And then we thought, why don't we take them back okay. to Egypt? So we did apply. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we mm -hmm. initially, how we came together is that we've done a, a, I've done like a scoping exercise trying to research who would uh, benefit most from this or which community groups within Egypt would benefit most from this because we we were we were we were thinking of we don't want it to be a top down type of project where we take the findings and like yeah we, sure. we we do we organize lectures or workshops where we tell the Egyptians this is the information here you go. But we, we wanted to make something that is meaningful out of it, but equally beneficial. Mm -hmm. And it was part of our bigger aim um, of how we can center uh, Egyptian communities into this conversation or into um, the histories of uh, archaeology, the histories of Egyptian archaeology. Because currently, as you know, there is a big wave for confronting uh, colonial legacies in Western museums or in um, mm -hmm. disciplines that have been uh, embedded uh, in colonialism or like who uh, came out and about out of colonialism which archaeology especially in Egypt and the Middle East is is one of them um, and and we felt that um, one aspect that is missing which is crucial is the actual communities who have been previously colonized where their voices mm -hmm. are totally absent from this conversation and the conversation is turning into one that is very academic and very western so we weren't really sure that this is going to achieve anything. So we felt that we can use our project as an opportunity to offer a way where we can um, confront those colonial legacies with and by and for the Egyptians. And at the same time, um, try to offer an example of how you can use these same collections and archives that are uh, that are the outcome of colonialism, but you can use them to serve the communities back in the source, back in the countries of origin. So the only way for us to do this was to have some sort of a people-centered approach where we identify a few community groups and we identify a few initiatives that were already taking place, which we can become part of rather than us um, introducing ourselves as like um, outsiders getting into the community mm -hmm. and offering service. We wanted to be part of something that is already ongoing so we can benefit the community and also be part of it at the same time so um we collaborated initially while drafting the application and the whole application was designed in conversation with all our egyptian partners so with two community schools and um community initiatives in egypt one called educate me and the other one is called tawasul and they are both based in some of um egypt most uh, or cairo's most deprived neighborhoods and uh, interestingly they are also nearby the two big museum projects the two new big uh, museum projects currently which is the grand egyptian museum and uh, the national museum of egyptian civilization the nemec so we felt that this could be a way to warm them up that once the museums open that they can feel that they are that they also belong to the museum they also belong uh, to this part of history rather than them feeling that it's just for tourists and because of uh, they are um on like because of their social and economic conditions they are uh, they sh they are dismissed uh or pushed away out of the gates of the museum 
So we felt that this could be a way to, to help them um, get included into the conversation. And we've also uh, working with a variety of comic artists. Um, the, the reason why we felt that we wanted to um, get in, in, enter into a dialogue with the Egyptian communities, but in a way that could be accessible for everyone in terms of literacies, but in a way that also captures uh, the spirit of Egypt, the spirit of Egypt and its character. So we chose um, comics to be our way, um, like uh, funny comics, not, not 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 the type of comics, not the Marvel, like not not just superheroes type of comics, but we we have superheroes, but we also have like um, the fun, the the humorous comics, which is uh, how we engage on social media because uh, Egypt is big on social media, as everyone knows, uh, and um, this was also a way that we can. Um, engage but equally it's a platform where people can respond back so it's a two-way mm -hmm. conversation that can happen so we tend to post bi-weekly comic strips with Nasser Jr the the magnificent uh, comic artist our um, wonderful Nasser where we 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 offer the series of uh, Nasser and Heba and Egypt's dispersed heritage so we felt that we can um, we can convert the conversation that me and him have behind the scenes into the actual comic so people can get totally engaged with us in the whole process. So we tend to transform the discussions that we have into a comic strip. That's why me and Nasser are the main characters of the comic. It's not uh, it's not narcissist or anything, just <laughs> just for people to know. Like there is there is there is a good reason behind it. It's not just us uh, being mean or anything. So or looking out for fame. And then we've got El uh, Ausbo. And that's an adult comic and uh, the adult comic scene has been uh, has very much revived in Egypt after 2011 the political events in 2011 but it remains uh, although it has revived so much but it's still underrepresented within the community and we felt that this is uh, this is where the youth most of the youth tend to engage the most so we collaborated with the Al-Uzba and that's an adult comic, uh, an adult Egyptian comic. It's one of the leading Arabic-speaking uh, adult comic, and um, we we chose them because they are the superheroes. But their superheroes are inspired, but not only ancient Egypt, but equally uh, the, all the layers of Egypt's heritage and history. So they they fit quite well in our aim of confronting colonial legacies and part of the colonial legacies is dismissing the rest of the layers of Egypt's history and focusing only on Pharaonic Egypt. So that was one of the reasons. And they are also uh, the power that fights uh, evil for good and, and they stand by the vulnerable. And we believe that Egyptian communities are quite vulnerable when it comes to um, the reconstruction of Egypt's past. They are usually isolated and disenfranchised, both intellectually and physically. So we felt that they could be the superheroes that help us bring justice to the Egyptian communities. The final comic artist, uh, but not the least, uh, is Dina Muhammad, uh, who I... Um, I I'm a big fan because she's a feminist comic artist, and that that that's my reason. Because she's she's the one behind El Qahira, uh, the the hijabi superhero. So I I can personally totally relate, which is like um, confronting Western stereotypes and stigmas. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, <laughs> so this is it. And and for Dina, because she has she's very interested in um, um, in confronting again. Western narratives and Eurocentricism, so she could be our way into offering perhaps an Egyptian female eye view into things, but equally in 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 how we can um, offer a non-Eurocentric view 
of Egypt's past or offer an alternative like reverse colonialism through her work, which mm -hmm. she does specialize in. Mm -hmm. And least we are we are also working uh, on a storytelling project, which is a surprise, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. which relies on Egypt traditional storytelling um, format or tradition, which could be equally a street performance which would be performed in the community schools that we're currently working into Kitni and Tawasul. And something that came recently, and uh, this wasn't a partner that we had initially, but after we started the project work, then after we, we started making some, I would, I don't know if I can call it impact, but people became more aware of us. So we've been contacted by a um, few other Egyptian um, initiatives like Arabayt al-Hawazit or the storytelling talk in Sharia which also mm -hmm. tends to go around the Delta, mm -hmm. um, offering storytelling workshops to um, vulnerable children or those who come from uh, a deprived background. And we're mm -hmm. currently working with them into offering some storytelling sessions in the Delta as well, uh, using mm -hmm. our comics and using, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, the, 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 the outputs that we've got so far. And we'll be linking uh, through the five, we, we are doing this, so these are the Egyptian partners that we've got, and these are the Egyptian outputs, but we've got also, we're doing this through our five UK partners, because the whole idea is how, as I said, center the Egyptian communities into the colonial legacies of uh, Western museums. So we felt that we want to foster a dialogue between mm. these UK museums and these um, uh, UK institutions and the Egyptian communities. So we're working with five UK museums, mm -hmm. the Peachy Museum of Egyptian Archaeology, Edinburgh, uh, the National Museum of Scotland, based in Edinburgh, Manchester Museum, Liverpool mm -hmm. Museum, and the Horniman Muse uh, Museum and Gardens, and um, the Egypt Exploration Society, which is our main um, archival institution partner. And mm -hmm. we're linking the, the resources and the collections in these uh, six UK partners with the Egyptian communities. And we're working also in linking the community schools that we've got with UK schools through the educational departments in both uh, the Horniman Museum and the National Museum of Scotland. So we're trying a real um, hangout between Egyptian kids and British kids and trying to, to make them both perhaps understand why is ancient Egypt in the UK and what can mm -hmm. we do about this and, and how we can bring both cultures uh, together in, in a way that could be meaningful for both sides. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's actually really, that's very comprehensive and really interesting. Um, it sounds like a, it sounds like a massive project, but it also sounds like an extremely important one. And I like the fact that there's, there's sort of different branches, like the comic, comic strips in various forms and the um, community events and then uh, social media as well. That's, it sounds like you're tackling the problem from several directions at once, which is yeah. perhaps a really good way to do it. Whereas like maybe conventionally museums would would yeah. start with their exhibition and then yeah. they would try to branch out from that. But maybe this is taking taking an alternative route, which might have um, also so. very Museums strong usually tend to use the, the quick fix of a focus group. Mm. But then, again, yeah, focus groups, they are never totally sure. representative and it's only one way of, of um, amplifying voices. And it's only through the curatorial field in the museum. Which makes, which makes whatever happens, as you said, just an exhibition. But then the museum is made up of a variety of departments mm. and through which other cultures are represented, like 
for example, the educational department or the programming and activities. And I think that the only way to truly decolonize is not only to focus mm. on how um, the objects are displayed or if they should be repatriated or not, but equally on how we speak about those cultures in the museum as a whole not just in mm. how they are displayed, because the museum is not only its displays, it tends to do a lot of activities, but for some reason, the decolonization process is focused only on displays as if, or repatriation, as if this is the only problem. But I have to say like um, mm. the, educational, the educational departments, as well as the activities and programming have uh, equally the same effect, if not more, because they tend to, um, it's, it's more of a two-way dialogue with the audience rather than an object that is displayed with a label mm. where people just read it and just move on. But yeah, having like school, school mm. groups or, or something like, uh, or programming activities, that can be the real way where you can change how a culture is represented within a museum in a way that can truly bring uh, justice or perhaps set the record straight for those who've been um, totally, mm -hmm. uh, totally dismissed or totally silenced or unwritten from the conversation. So that, that's what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. That's why we're focusing on a variety of activities that are not only curatorial or that are not only focused on um, labels or focused on display. We're looking into the museum as mm -hmm. a whole. That's really, really excellent. I like that idea. So before before you began working on the Dispersed Heritage Project, you also curated an exhibition at the Petrie Museum of Egyptian Archaeology. And it was titled uh, Egypt's Ordinary Woman, although I've also seen it referenced as listened to her. Yeah, listened to her, yeah. For, for those of my listeners who aren't familiar with it, I'll, I'll provide links to the um, online information. But how did this particular project begin? Um, it, it was a very, very kind invitation from Anna Garnett and Helen Pike. Uh, Anna Garnett, the curator of the Petrie Museum of Egyptian, uh, of Egyptian and Sudanese Archaeology, mm -hmm. and Helen Pike, she's the head of programming at UCL Culture. Mm -hmm. And it came about after uh, an event they had on women in mm -hmm. Egypt in general. And there I gave a presentation on um, modern Egyptian women or like the struggles and, and the activism yeah. of modern Egyptian women. And there has been um the women the 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 women history month let's say currently mm -hmm. that or like it's uh, it's becoming an annual theme mm -hmm. in uh, in the uk in let's museums and universities mm -hmm. where there is like where they a dedicated month for like pioneer pioneering women mm -hmm. and i felt that um um I'm not into very much the way the history of women gets reconstructed currently because there is so much focus on the pioneering women or those who have broke the glass ceiling and there is very, very little, if any, emphasis on the ordinary women who for them sometimes make it through the day is in itself an act of activism. Mm. Um, so so there is a need to celebrate um, everything that is that doesn't have to be a Nobel Prize. Like I don't have to be a winner of a Nobel Prize <laughs> for the world to acknowledge my contribution as a woman because um, um, our life is difficult and different mm. uh, anyway than, than men. Let's let's put it this way. Sure. So any so any sort of any sort of contribution we make, no matter how minor, should be celebrated. And I feel that this is particularly problematic for the women from the Middle East because we are usually summed up in our headscarves. That's we're only seen mm. through our hijab, uh, and that's that's um, that's the only act of feminism that people want to have with us is us uh, yeah. 
taking off the scarf and that, that, that would fix our problems. And there is very little uh, understanding of how feminism is, yes, it's, there is a universal, women, women's struggle is universal, but solutions can only be local. Mm -hmm. And because there is a very, uh, there is a very, uh, it's not, it's not, um, feminism is, is becoming more or less of a very much of a Western construct mm -hmm. that it doesn't accept that this, that this doesn't work in all parts of the world mm -hmm. and that this is, being a Western model doesn't necessarily have to make it an international model. Mm -hmm. So that was my aim. My aim was like, first of all, we need to uh, celebrate the ordinary women because we are usually called as Egyptians, uh, Egyptian like women. We are known as uh, the daughters of Nefertiti or mm -hmm. but I'm the daughter of Nefertiti. So where is my royal treatment? Because obviously none of us gets the royal treatment that Nefertiti had. Mm -hmm. And there is so much emphasis on even in ancient Egypt on the queens and very little, uh, very little, very, very little uh, do we talk about the ordinary women in ancient Egypt who I think were the true ones behind the culture, mm -hmm. not only the queens, at least the queens had the bloodline. Mm -hmm. So for them, um, yeah, Hatshepsut fighting with Moses III, yeah, amazing, great. But it's not, it's not like also those women who were farming, uh, doing all the day-to-day -day work, who were really struggling and who might have not even knew that the queen was called Hatshepsut. Mm. Let's let's face it. We know this because we we have access to the hieroglyphs. Most of the Egyptians, even then and during ancient Egypt, would wouldn't couldn't would, couldn't read or write much of the text that we are able to despire so easily today. Mm. So I felt that that could be a way that we talk about women, but the ordinary women, mm -hmm. and for people to see that activism can come in a variety of ways. That uh, the model that is presented in the West is not the absolute only model, mm -hmm. and that. There is so much celebration of the activism of uh, Western women that uh, we are totally um, dismissed from the conversation as if we do nothing. And that was also because of it was the same time as the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was, I have to say, an article that really irritated me where we should we should really export Me Too to the Middle East. Mm. Although women in Egypt have been fighting sexual harassment since 2011 and we've had mass protests in mm -hmm. Egypt since 2011-2012 and uh, Egyptian um, visual artists and graffiti artists, female graffiti artists, they took the streets of Cairo and the walls as their battleground and they've been spraying uh, like really provocative um, in your face graffiti mm. uh, that, um, that this is actually uh, that they are risking far more than the Me Too movement mm. I would say but because it happens in Egypt uh, so it doesn't count as activism or it, it, it doesn't as a wave that the rest of the world should replicate, although I believe it should. So I felt like, hang on, we, we should change the narrative here. So that's that's what I did. I, choose, uh, I chose six uh, single and collective stories between uh, the working women, the women who work in the archaeological field work that's been working even since the time of Pichi, and one of them was a girl. Mm -hmm. And that is another issue also because we tend to celebrate uh, the workmen, but we ignore the women. So even when we are trying to uh, bring justice to the Egyptians, we are very selective on which Egyptians we, we uh, which like at, at least the gender. So there is a focus on the Kiftis as the men, but we totally ignore that there were actually women on Peachy's workforce too. Mm -hmm. So there was changing the story of the female workforce, 
bringing the story of Egyptian um, singers and performers and the political activism, the political activists that because of her, perhaps we might have had the revolution in 2011. She was mm-hmm. the first one to fight uh, with it. Uh, she was the first one to fight for equal pay for women and men and against the um, against the selling, the factories, the privatization of public uh, uh, industries in Egypt. Mm. And then there was the collective of uh, the Egyptian women who were against sexual harassment. And there was Dina Mohammed, the same comic artist that we're currently collaborating with. I've highlighted her work in the Kahira, uh, mm-hmm. the comic superhero, because it's a hijabi superhero. Uh, and it was her way to defy how Western uh, feminism tends to misrepresent us. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. No, absolutely. That is an important important part that often gets overlooked either either yeah. consciously or unconsciously. Either the author chooses to ignore them or they just don't even think to investigate them. We had also 10 objects uh, relabeled by Egyptian women, non-Egyptian women. And it was, it was really interesting because they were female-related objects and it was perhaps the first time where we offered this alternative labeling uh, in a Western medium done by exclusively Egyptian women. And uh, it was extremely interesting because the labels that they put were very provocative and they were very uh, sincere and emotional. And it was a way of us to rethink of um, the typologies that we tend to to frame objects in, in Egyptology, which are very pr- pragmatic and we tend to ignore the emotional side of things. And that, that, that for me was interesting because we tend to label every object as ritual-based object, that that's usually... That it, like that's the solution for every object we don't understand why it was used we just say that it was ritual related but the work that Mm -hmm. or the 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 labels they offered at least showed me personally that there are other ways of looking at objects that is not only ritual yeah fantastic based on the work you've done so far and the experiences you've had around that how do you think museums let's just say generally the sort of a general museum can improve in these respects moving forward? How can they provide better and more meaningful representation of source communities? Well, there, there is, uh, there, if, if you look at it, there is the side of the policies and there is the practice itself. Mm-hmm. So for the policies, I, w- I would argue for a structural change in terms of the workforce within the museum mm-hmm. itself. Because at the end of the day, um, the background does have an impact on the way you see things. And mm. if you're, all your workforce is white, and mm-hmm. <laughs> if, yep. if it's, uh, yeah, um, ap- apologies for that, then it's, no. it's very I... difficult for you to make change, no matter how much you collaborate with, with communities, because you've got your limitations already. The way I see things would be different than the way you see things. That, that, is, that comes from our upbringing, that comes from our exposure and mm. from our environment. And um, from from the way we, we we perceive ourselves and the world around us, mm-hmm. so that, that 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 would be the aim: more people uh, of color, more people of minorities, more people from the source communities. Who many of them are currently diaspora in most of the Western countries that host objects from elsewhere around the world, and I'm sure, sure that um, they've got the enough expertise to be able to to become part of uh, the actual real workforce moving beyond like uh, the lowest um, the lowest steps of the ladder of the mm. employment ladder like moving beyond the cleaning services i'll be honest 
moving mm -hmm. beyond yeah the cleaning and security services which is where you would tend to see the diversity of museums the most but moving forward there has to be and and that has that has to become uh, i would say if if it starts as positive discrimination then be it if there is mm -hmm. explicitly that we ask for certain for people from certain backgrounds to apply for certain jobs then i think that if this is what it has to take then perhaps that could be the way that employment is fair mm -hmm. uh, because they've been already misrepresented for so long so the, there is this side of the policies of having more within in the side of practice i think that we need as i said to look at the museum um as uh, as a whole because there is there is the there is the, there is the display but there is also the social media for the museum mm -hmm. There is equally the programming and activities. There is the educational uh, activities. There is the marketing. There is the exhibition shop. These are all parts of the museum that does contribute to how certain culture is represented, not only the display. And the only way for real change to happen or for more source communities to be amplified is for them to be um, um, more, more, I would say again, amplified in all those departments, not only in the display, because in the display, this is just a tick box that we're doing, but that doesn't change the real stories, um, the real the real narrative in the head of the visitor. So, mm -hmm. so that would be it. And I, I think that it's about time that also museums um, realize that they are not, they shouldn't be a happy place. They shouldn't be where you get uh, sanitized, clean stories like, it's a place where history is messy and mm -hmm. history is all about struggle and uh, the more like history is only history is only narrated through actually the sad days more than the happy days <laughs> we tend to you know, that that's, that's like if you get if, if you get like in the calendar uh, on this day it would usually be a series of uh, like misachievements and then one person won the, no the nobel prize or something but mm. if, if so so this is this this is it history is is part, like history is made up of events and interestingly or perhaps ironically or sadly most of these events are not happy events so if mm. we if if we get if we if if we get the museum to tell the real stories not only the stories that they think that people can handle but the real stories of the source communities the real story behind how an object ended up being in the museum not only to say it's part of colonialism but we have to say what was also included in colonialism because the narrative of colonialism of museums is equally a very it, it's like a it was a very peaceful process mm. they don't they don't yeah they, they never acknowledge the amount of uh, lives that were lost for colonialism and the resources exploited for mm. colonial for colonialism and uh, the emotional baggage that communities still today are still struggling with from such acts mm -hmm. so unless we acknowledge this we acknowledge this openly in all the departments of the museum, not only in the display, only then change can happen. And that can only happen if the, of the, if the source communities are truly part of the conversation, not only a one-off uh, uh, exercise or like a one-off exhibition where we have few voices here and there contributing, but they have to be part of the process of uh, the making of this history, be it the diaspora living uh, in those countries or be it the communities which you can easily engage with online. And they are, mm. they are already, they are already, uh, if we're talking about the case of Egypt, uh, Egyptians are already communicating on the social media handles of Western museums. And um, most of the commentaries they make is very moving and is very emotional. And it shows that there is such a 
deep hurt when like it's it's a very um it's it's a very emotional scene for you to see part of your history elsewhere where others are boasting about it where uh, you are totally deprived of that and the commentaries that you get uh, that the Egyptians tend to post on Western museums, social media handles are truly moving that at times I wish that they could read really the Arabic there for them to acknowledge the real harm that has been done. And also to realize that uh, colonial practices are still well and alive and kicking. It's not just something of the past. It's still there to the extent that if I post something on Arabic on an Egyptian uh, on an Egyptian object that is displayed el elsewhere, not in Egypt, even if it's from modern Egypt, um, the, the person who's behind the social media handle wouldn't understand what I'm saying. He would have to rely on Google Translate because he wouldn't be able to read and write Arabic. Mm -hmm. um, so, that, so that in itself is telling. Absolutely. So, so social media obviously offers a very good yeah. opportunity for outreach yeah. but then of course there's also the fundamental structure of museums as yeah. organizations which needs to needs to adapt and reflect the the realities of both the histories around uh, these collections and also where they where they're going to be moving forward because history is not static it's constantly changing and maybe museums can sometimes seem quite out of date in terms of how their organization is actually arranged in some respects. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So moving now to your, to your career, both as a museum curator, public outreach specialist, and as an Egyptologist, what was your early um, attraction to the field? What inspired you to uh, get involved in this? Well, <laughs> big question. Yeah, it, it is a big question indeed. Um, I have to say, I, I don't know if it's for the right reasons, but I've always had a, I've always loved history. And mm -hmm. it, it was due to um, my dad, I have to say, because he's, he's a big fan of uh, history and he's, he's an avid reader uh, mm -hmm. in, in history. So we've always had history books uh, hanging around the house. And, mm -hmm. I've, I've, and he did encourage me to read a lot. But my, my, my issue was that there is all we're always very growing up i've seen how we're always very nostalgic to the past and yes. we feel sorry for our present and i just the reason why i studied i i i i enrolled in egyptology was just for me to try to understand what really happened mm. <laughs> because there is we, we we tend to narrate or there is this narration of this victoria this victorious past of egypt like mm. glorious one and then looking around you, growing up in modern Egypt, you would feel, why aren't we leading the world as we were in ancient times? Mm -hmm. And that was that was my motivation. I was just curious to know what, what happened, like, or what went right or wrong, I don't know. Only yeah. for me to realize that the past later on, I only, only after I became, um, I don't know if I call myself Egyptologist or researcher okay. in Egypt history or... I don't know. It, it, it doesn't really matter. It's just my degree was called a degree in Egyptology, so I I, I don't know. But after I became a, like someone who's deeply interested in this, I realized that the problem is not in what in us in just what happened, but the problem is in the way that the history is narrated, that mm. um, that, that is narrated through the kings and queens, and the ordinary Egyptians are totally ignored, and and that's why we tend to see it very glorious, while we we miss that. Uh, 
well, for the rest of the Egyptians, ancient Egypt wasn't a really glorious, victorious place. <laughs> they, yeah, they yeah they had to work really hard, and they had they earned really little, and they were mm -hmm. totally discriminated against and mm -hmm. uh, exploited. So nothing really happened. <laughs> well, that was like when I when I was saying like what happened from from the past till the present. That was my motivation only for me to realize that this has always been the case. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. It's just the way the way it's narrated to us that that can make us feel uh, belittled. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's a good that's a good good approach. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, so, moving forward, once you once you started to pursue it uh, academically, um, what are some of your your sort of most notable or favorite experiences working in the field of uh, we'll just we'll just call it Egyptology generally, but sort of, what are some of your favorite experiences working in this profession? Um, the, 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 it, it's it's the Beyond Beauty exhibition, and that was a turning point in my whole life. Um, not yeah, in, not maybe in my whole life because I met really, really, really people that I truly love and admire, and I owe them so much. Mm -hmm. um, and. It, it was a turning point because I've always known that uh, being an Egyptian and an Egyptologist is a blessing and a curse because I felt I feel like there is this perception that if I'm Egyptian and Egyptologist, I'm perceived as the representative of the whole of Egypt. So mm -hmm. if um, if I get invited, let's say, to a panel or whatever, so I'm the tick box that Egypt is represented. <laughs> Here we go. That's 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 heaven for you. So we, we bring an Egyptian voice to fix it. So that's yeah. all the problems fixed. And it's a curse in the sense that you could, because of how some of the colonial legacies are still persisting, you would find that because you are an Egyptian Egyptologist, you are you can be equally silenced and dismissed because of being Egyptian too. Mm -hmm. Regardless, uh, you are still seen as um, um, less or of, uh, you, you mm -hmm. come as, uh, at uh, a a lower grade of mm -hmm. how things are absolutely it's sort of they they bring you bring you out because it looks good and then they after that they ignore you yeah and then they, they take you out because it looks bad like <laughs> yeah so 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 yeah but it was it was this it was the exhibition beyond beauty mm -hmm. at two temple place where uh, i felt that actually being an egyptian and an egyptologist is nothing mm -hmm. but an asset that there is so there is so much i can contribute by that um, there is so much agency that if if I'm just offered the opportunity, that there is so much change that I can bring. Not I, not I as Heba, but not not me as as, as myself, as as me in the person as Heba, but me as um, my background and my experience can allow me to achieve things that perhaps uh, a non-Egyptian creator wouldn't. And maybe I was lucky enough because I'm I'm more or less currently part of both worlds. Uh, I've lived in the UK for extensive amount of years that I've, I understand the system very well and I'm more acquainted with the Western culture and I tend to, I, I see how the others how the others mm. other us and how the mm. others see us uh, and I also see how we other the West and how we see the West so I could be the mediator more or less and and the amount of agency that I was given in this exhibition is is one of the reasons where I am where I am today. I, I'm, I'm able to achieve what I'm mm -hmm. achieving today. Um, mm -hmm. Because we were allowed in this exhibition not only to change the narrative about ancient Egypt, but uh, to also to change 
even how Egypt is displayed in the exhibition shop. I was allowed to work with an Egyptian NGO where we brought up uh, merchandise from Egypt and we weren't only selling products, but we were selling products and helping uh, single women or under, um, yeah, underrepresented communities in Egypt to gain some money by having their products sold in an exhibition in the UK. So you can also, you can, you don't only, you, you can sell products mm -hmm. but for a good cause that can go back mm -hmm. to the source communities. And that's what I, I meant by how even the exhibition shop or even the shop within a museum, in a Western museum, can still help the source communities rather than selling the tacky mm -hmm. Chinese products. You can bring some fair trade or meaningful uh, merchandise in the exhibition shops. Mm -hmm. And we were able also to organize a series of events uh, that surrounding around modern Egypt and invite modern artists. But equally, we were able to work very closely with the Egyptian mm -hmm. embassy and try to um, have them part of the conversation that we have the whole of Egypt represented, the whole of the communities in Egypt represented. And um, it, 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 was, um, it was a difficult time for Egypt because then uh, there was a travel ban from the UK to uh, the various of touristic sites. And we felt that we can also use or make people see how heritage abroad could be used as um, an international mm -hmm. relation asset where we can mm -hmm. forge some diplomacy or like uh, bring some good and perhaps reassure people that they can go back and visit Egypt by having an endorsement from the Egyptian embassy and having the, mm -hmm. the, tourism, um, uh, the tourism ministry in Egypt making some advertisements mm -hmm. within the exhibition and contributing mm -hmm. as well to how uh, people, Egypt can be safe mm -hmm. to go back to. So yeah, it, it's not just an exhibition about, because this is what I hate the most. It's, it's, there is so much focus sure. on ancient Egypt that uh, sure. we are totally dismissed and ignored. And the way ancient Egypt is presented uh, oppresses us so much that it does have a real, not only emotional impact, but equally economical. Because a lot of uh, the communities get totally disenfranchised and at times displaced from around sites for the benefit of tourists. So. The way you, the way we we frame ancient Egypt, be it in a museum or in an academic book, does have a real impact on the source communities today. That this does need to change. So yeah, that 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 was. Uh, yeah, I'm becoming too emotional now. <laughs> that was a really, really uh, one of my, the best experiences that I've ever had in my life beyond beauty at Two Temple Place. That's excellent. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Moving, last, moving now to our last question. This is, this is something that I ask everybody who does an interview with the show, and it sort of gives an insight into personalities and priorities or interests. And my question is that if you could answer one question from ancient Egyptian history, if you could, if you could find the definitive answer to one problem or issue or question, what would you choose to know about ancient Egypt and why? Oh, that's a... You know what? I've, I've always been interested, yeah, talking about ordinary Egyptians, I've always been interested to know how, um, how, how 
the ordinary Egyptians mm-hmm. felt about ancient Egypt or felt about how, how did it feel to be a citizen in ancient Egypt or to be like under the rulership of the pharaoh in Egypt because I would be mm-hmm. because I understand that the text that we've, we've got this is mm-hmm. a very sanitized version and it's what they want us to believe or feel especially the priests and it's written by uh, those who had the upper hand but we, 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 we know nothing about those who've been uh, at the very mm. uh, lower, at the, at the very at the very low of the social strata, how did they feel about living or being in Egypt? Because we tend to draw a very rosy picture of ancient mm-hmm. Egypt. This is the place of technology. This is the place of inventions, mm-hmm. culture, civilization. Mm-hmm. But I can't help but feel that um, I'm not, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to get into controversial issues like uh, slavery and the pyramids, etc. Um, I'm not. I'm not really sure that that the, the the ordinary Egyptians were very happy to have been that exploited as we think they mm-hmm. were, because they're human beings after all, and I'm sure they were truly deprived and they were struggling from 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 what I can tell. <laughs> so I, I I would really I would really 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 love to know how an average Egyptian back then in ancient times felt about how did he perceive the state of affairs then. Or maybe like what what type of chit chat they used to have like political mm. chit chat like would they were were they complaining like us like like yeah yeah <laughs> I would love to know all what we don't get in the actual records because of they they weren't able to they weren't able to read or write so absolutely yeah that's the crucial information we're missing so maybe what you'd like you'd like to do is uh, go back for a week and interview people or just. I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I don't know if you've noticed but I'm a very people person like I love talking to people so I would just walk around the streets and just stop everyone and ask them questions and befriend them and want to, to truly know how they how they feel about being Egyptians then or how yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's good. How were their conditions? I like that. Yeah. Um that's a very good answer. Thank you. Okay, so... Thank you. No thank you for asking. It's a very interesting question. I've never thought about it. Yeah, I find it. I find it brings an am- amazing variety of answers from different people. Yeah. Okay, so that that brings me to the end of my questions. So Heba, thank you very much for coming on to the History of Egypt podcast and discussing thank these. You. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the very very kind invitation. I did enjoy my time so much. Thank you so much. Lovely. I'll I'll let you head off head off to bed in a moment. Um, but before I before I go. If my listeners want to uh, find out more about you, I'll provide some links on the podcast website. And uh, you're on Twitter and Twitter and Facebook as well, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, and I look forward to speaking with you again in future. Thank you so much. Same to you. Same, same goes for me. Thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks to Haber for taking time out of her schedule to speak with us. See you next time on the History of Egypt podcast. Take care. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.